France's president, Emmanuel Macron, has literally compared himself to a god. But for the past three weeks, French citizens have been protesting his policies, and the movement has evolved into a broader protest against Macron himself. At times, the protests have gotten violent. People have died. So why are the French so mad? That's today on Worldly from the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hello. Bonjour. So these protests are big even by French standards, and there's a lot of protests in that country. What kicked them off? So the most specific issue is a gas tax hike. Basically, French people pay already a lot for gas. It's about seven oh six a gallon. Holy shit. Yeah, it's insane. And Macron has asked for about a 30-cent increase. So whatever that math is, seven thirty-six a gallon. That's a lot. So French people started to demonstrate against it, really starting around November 17th, this movement called the Yellow Vest Movement, named after the vest that they wear, that also French people must by law carry in cars with them in case they break down. And this has spread from not just Paris, but also to other parts of France, to other cities, to the rural areas. And it's caused a massive backlash against Macron's presidency, against, of course, this measure. But it's now a pretty widespread movement that's causing a lot of problems for Macron. Right. And part of that has to do with the fact that France relies on cars a lot, especially people outside of cities in more rural areas um, outside of Paris. So it's important for lower and middle class French people to be able to afford fuel to literally get to and from work and earn a living. The fact that fuel costs are already really high, this new announcement of of another gas tax was really the straw that broke the camel's back, essentially. And people were like, look, cost of living is already really high. The economy's not doing super great, especially for like rural uh, people outside of the cities. And so people flipped out and started demonstrating big time. And like you said, it's evolved into this much bigger kind of issue about like the lower and middle classes. Yeah, the class component here is is crucial. Macron, when he was initially elected, campaigned as a centrist kind of elite candidate, a safe alternative He's for the French banker. establishment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. To relative to Marine Le Pen, the far right populist who was his opponent in the presidential election. And Macron really has, in a lot of ways, governed as the president for the rich, right? He's raised taxes, he's cut social services, and just in general has not done very much for these rural and lower and middle class French people. Right. And so the way he sees this is that France's economy has been struggling because its economy is kind of stuck in the old days, right? There are a lot of social programs that are very costly, Labor protections right. kind of allow business, you know, make it harder for businesses to fire bad performing workers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so Macron, to effectively unshackle his uh, his country's economy, has pushed through a lot of these reforms. Now, you could argue sort of at the outset, well, that seems useful, right? A lot of these things may, economists would say, help France's economy grow. But the people that suffer those burdens earlier are those that are less well-to-do. And on top of that, Macron doesn't help his case. He's clearly favored people who live in in cities. Uh, If you've ever been in France, you may have said, well, they have a great train system, you know, public transportation. Like, I get that they need cars, but how big a deal is this? Well, interestingly enough, their transportation system focuses more on, like, getting people to cities. And so if you are trying to go from rural area to rural area, it's actually really hard. And therefore, like, cars are a must. Right. And like you said, like, rolling back the labor protections, in May, like, thousands of people, high school students, unionists, civil servants, protested because he announced a plan to cut 120,000 civil service jobs. And again, like in the broader long term economically, that may be a good idea. But the acute effect of that is that, you know, the rich and upper middle class can kind of muddle through, right? They can kind of survive. Whereas like the lower and middle classes are like, look, we're dying here. Like we cannot function 
it's not just these policies that the two of you have just outlined, right? It's the way that he's presented them. I said at the beginning that he compared himself to a god. He's referred to his ideology as Jupiterian centrism. That is referring to Jupiter or Zeus, the head of the Roman and Greek pantheon, right? Like this is a guy who has said that people don't understand and can't understand his policies publicly. He he presents himself as this kind of unique cult of personality genius who's just going to do what he's going to do and other people, if they don't like it, they don't get it, right? And this is a terrible, terrible way to sell policies that are squeezing the middle class and lower class, right? If you wanted to appear as the caricature of a candidate of the upper class, that is what you would do. Right, like that may work when you're like a super rich elite banker and you're like running a staff of people and you like you know, holding a staff meeting and you're like, look, I'm the boss. I don't really care. When you're the president and your legitimacy literally comes from people voting and supporting you, maybe being like, I don't really care if you get it or like you're too dumb to get this. Just trust me. It's definitely not a good way to deal with that. And he's seeing that result now tangibly. And just so we're clear what these protests are like, right? I don't want to just skip over that. We mentioned that they're violent. There are, there's rioting, there's looting, uh, Cars being set on fire, storefronts being smashed, uh, and then, you know, the French security services have been deployed, and so they've been clashing with protesters, and it's gotten really bad. I mean, the images—Alex, you had a great piece up on Vox uh, with just some staggering images from these protests. Like, you literally see the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, this kind of icon of Paris— surrounded, like, looks like it's going up in smoke from from tear gas, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So this is massive— yeah, it's about 100,000 or so in Paris alone this this past Saturday going after all, you know, hundreds of thousands of protesters. It's basically every Saturday or so there's this massive demonstration in Paris and there are smaller protests throughout the week. In fact, coming up there, you know, the next Saturday, they're expecting an even bigger one for calling for violence in the Elysee, which is basically the presidential palace. I mean, this could even get worse. And we've seen four people die already from clashes, one 80-year-old woman in Marseille was hit with a tear gas canister and, and thrown through a window. She died later. And you've had, you know, hundreds of people injured, more, many more arrested. I mean, this is real unrest in France. It's Unlike not like they've seen for decades, right? Yeah, I mean, the last kind of riots we've seen of this magnitude in Paris were in 1968. Really? That's yeah. the comparison point? Because yeah. that was a massive, like, generation-defining <laughs> upheaval. Yeah, yeah. That, that's what they're comparing it to. Like, this is the biggest one since then. Okay, so if it's that big, what— it, it seems like the government needs to do something to deal with it. And they did, in fact, cancel the tax hike, right? The gas tax that started this. So they did temporarily. They announced it was going to be like a short term. And then it didn't really seem to solve the problem. So they were like, OK, we're going to cancel it for 2019. They didn't say they would never do it. Right, right. right. And that goes to this broader point, I think, that, Zach, you wanted to talk about. that. This wasn't just related to France's economy and its budget, though it was. It also had to do with climate change. Right. The reason why you increase gas taxes in the first place is because you want to make driving more expensive. That's what caused the anger, but it's also because driving is super bad for the climate and you want to discourage people from driving. It's smart policy. Virtually every climate economist that I have encountered has suggested that the United States needs to dramatically increase its own gas taxes uh, in order to limit the amount of time that people spend on the road. Yeah, and not even that, but it's the farther knock-on effects of like, that then damages like the fossil fuel industry's ability to kind of be like this behemoth. And ideally, people would move to things like, you know, electric and natural gas and like all the alternatives. Right. So it's part of that kind of broader, you know, Paris Climate Accords kind of pledge 
to try to move away from fossil fuels yeah, and things like that. And it's just it's difficult because with policies like this that are defensible and good, like maybe even some of Macron's other economic reforms, the pain in the short term to try to deal with these longer run problems can make it very, very difficult to get from point A to point B, yeah. uh, right, to solve a or at least do your sort of small contributions that need to add up in order to prevent catastrophic warming. Like, it can be really difficult to overcome these initial hurdles presented by the initial pain that they cause. And especially if you're not good at selling it, like Macron. It's not like he's out there saying, like, look, guys, I get that it's hard. Like, we're going to take steps to make sure this doesn't squeeze you guys too hard. But this is really important. Like, he's just going like, I don't know, screw you. So here's the takeaway, I think, from this conversation. If you want to try to restructure an economy and you want to try to take somewhat painful action to stop climate change, it would be best if you didn't compare yourself to a god and tell people they are too stupid to understand your policies while doing it. Good pro tip. Yeah, solid, solid. Okay, so we're going to stop here and take a brief break. Afterwards, we're going to discuss the foreign policy legacy of the late George H.W. Bush. Welcome back. Now we're talking about George H.W. Bush, who recently passed away and was mourned in a very large and well-attended state funeral on Wednesday. He was a really, really important foreign policy president. He presided over the end of the Cold War and launched the first U.S. war in Iraq. His legacy is big, massive, really, on these subjects, and we don't have the time to talk about every different facet of it. So each of us sort of picked a particular policy or overall aim of George H.W. Bush's, and we're going to talk about the legacy of each of these for good and for ill for the United States and the rest of the world. So, Alex, you picked something interesting. I hope so. Uh, I picked Panama because it really hasn't been talked about much in terms of George W. Bush's foreign policy and is kind of a forgotten U.S. invasion, it seems. So, so what happened? The backstory is that Panama had a military dictator. His name was Manuel Noriega. We need to know that there was a civilian leadership in Panama, but he was the de facto ruler as the head of the military. We had a good relationship with him. The U.S. had a good relationship yeah, we, with him. Yeah, we, we supported him. We supported him for many years. He was anti-communist. He helped us in Nicaragua. And then he turned out that he was a drug dealer. And then he kind of turned against us, got closer to the Soviet Union in Cuba, and Bush started to think of plans to kind of get rid of him. When the candidate that Noriega wanted to lose won the presidential election, he disavowed that. There was violence, paramilitaries, et cetera. And then, actually, a U.S. service member died in the fighting. And that was seen as a move for George H.W. Bush to go, okay, now we can overthrow him. Panama, of course, being important because of the canal. And so it was not just, you know, Noriega himself, but it was also, we need to have some sort of stability in this country. So Bush sends over 20,000 troops to Panama to overthrow Noriega in December 1989. This was the first year of his presidency. It was also the largest military move by the United States since Vietnam relatively quickly, removes Noriega from power. He's incarcerated. He's We was in jail for 40 years over this and installed the president who won. And service member, American troops died. Panamanians were hurt. But at the end of the day, it was a one month or so invasion, freed up Panama. And now Panama today is a relatively peaceful democracy. It was a controversial move, not only then, but now seen by many people as, you know, America is the policeman of the world went, you know, invaded without really any approval from from Latin American countries, from the UN, violated Panama sovereignty, so to speak. But some people would say in support of this that because Panama is doing better now, it may have been a good idea at the time. It's a complicated question, right? Because while it probably was justifiable to overthrow Noriega, who was a 
bad guy, a bad guy. The US, Very brutal back for a long yeah. period of time, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, yes. But nonetheless, a bad guy, right? The the precedent that it set in the post Cold War world was that the United States would intervene relatively frequently in Latin American affairs, which it of course did during the Cold War to brutal effect. But that continued on. Right, with, you know, U.S. backing of the drug war in Colombia, for instance, which has been dramatically counterproductive. So this – it's not just like this generalized thing about the U.S. as the world's policeman. It's the specific idea of ownership over the Western Hemisphere. Yeah, I mean that's that's exactly one of the big issues. Again, one, the U.S. has a very checkered history in Latin America, as you alluded to. And then some even critics would go beyond saying that this really – you know, we've invaded countries before, but this really set the stage for – quick, easy, relatively bloodless, there was blood, don't get me wrong, but relatively bloodless invasions that that where America achieves its goals. You can do that when Panama had a really weak military and we already had troops there, but that, that sort of thinking didn't really apply elsewhere. What, what, right, and that's a really great point, Alex, because, you know, the, the military kind of mission and experience in Panama deeply affected another issue, which is the one that I want to talk about, which is the first Gulf War. So in August of 1990, Saddam Hussein, the leader of Iraq at the time. Remember Saddam? You may remember him. Heard of him. From the news. He invades Kuwait, the tiny oil-rich country that is its neighbor. And George H.W. Bush decided to respond and to send U.S. troops to support Saudi Arabia, which is, if you look at a map, they're all kind of right there. So Iraq, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia all kind of share borders. And so they saw, uh uh-oh, like maybe Saddam is going to move on Saudi Arabia next, right? And and they thought they saw troops kind of massing, heading towards Saudi Arabia. And because of Panama, because it had gone well and it was, like you said, relatively bloodless, it was kind of this, oh, well, we did it there. We can do this quick intervention here. So it really impacted like the way he decided to do that. And the legacy of what happened, right, they were they were right in a sense that it did go very quickly. Like 100 hours was how long the operation took. They stopped it on purpose at 100 hours because they thought it sounded like a nice round number and they were really impressed. Like, look how quickly we did it. And it was— Is that actually true? They just picked an arbitrary time and they're like, we're done after 100 hours. Yeah, actually. That's, <laughs> uh, that's good marketing. <laughs> I also don't want to overlook the fact that George H.W. Bush— also did some not great things when it came to Iraq. So at the same time uh, that this was all going on, he encouraged openly in a public speech and also administration officials privately encouraged Iraqis to rise up and overthrow Saddam themselves. It was like implying basically that the U.S. would support that. And many in Iraq, especially Shia and some of the Kurds, took that as a clear signal that if we do this, the U.S. will militarily back us. So they did. They had this massive uprising. And George H.W. Bush did not back them. And they were completely slaughtered. Like tens of thousands of people died. It was horrifying. But what happened after basically set the stage for our current like experience in the Middle East today and everything we've experienced for the last you know several decades, right? So U.S. troops went to Saudi Arabia. That pissed off a lot of people in Saudi Arabia, especially some of the kind of more hardline Muslim clerics, because it was like, oh, these infidel troops are in Saudi Arabia. We should have had, like, Muslim troops. And also, like, Saudi had been spending all this money on their military, 
And then all of a sudden they're like, wait, you've been spending all this money and you still had to call America? Like, what the hell have you been spending this money on then? So it it made a lot of people mad, including a person you also may remember, Osama bin Laden, who was very mad as a result at the Saudis for doing this and at the Americans. So you have that that kind of kicked off that legacy, right, that we know where that kind of ended or hasn't ended, as the case may be. You also have the fact that afterwards, the U.S. forces convinced Saddam to withdraw from Kuwait and go back to Baghdad. So George H.W. Bush made a decision on purpose not to continue to send American troops all the way to Baghdad to try to overthrow Saddam. He continues to do things like threaten the region and threaten America and just in general behave very badly. And because of that decision, some people in the George H.W. Bush administration thought, ah, shit, maybe we should have overthrown him. A lot of those people also happened to show back up when his son, George W. Bush, is then president. And they're there and they're like, look, Saddam's still there. He hasn't gone away. He's still behaving badly. He's still threatening the region. And that, in a large part, helped lay the groundwork for, okay, now for real in 2003, we're going to overthrow Saddam. And so that kicked off this whole world that we live in now with the Middle East uh, in chaos. Uh, I don't know about that take on it, right? Like, it is true that the George W. Bush people decided, partly because George H.W. Bush had gotten them entangled in the Iraq situation, to launch the Iraq war as we know it today. But they didn't have to do that. Oh, absolutely. Right? And, no, and, no, no. Absolutely. And I don't want to lose sight of the fact that when George H.W. Bush was president, Saddam Hussein literally invaded and tried to annex a neighbor, right? Like, what are you going to do? Are you just going to let him do that? Like, this isn't Russia that's a nuclear-armed power, right? This was a, a country testing the limits of what it could get away with. And the U.S. marshaled an international coalition to stop the forcible annexation of another country's territory, right? That, to me, seems like a, an accomplishment worth defending. Yeah, I mean, where people criticized Bush for ruining sovereignty in Panama, people praise him for defending it in the Kuwait situation. And, yeah, I, I think it's really interesting to note that when he passed, when George H.W. passed, towers in Kuwait were lit up with his portrait and with Kuwait and U.S. flags. He is still revered. And I mean, people name their children Bush, like in Kuwait. It, he is still seen as this savior in a non-religious sense, right, that that helped Kuwait get its country back. So there's a real lasting legacy there, too. Probably the biggest and hardest to wrap your mind around accomplishment of George H.W. Bush, at least in my mind, and this is my pick, is the way that he shepherded the end of the Cold War. It's easy for us to lose track of what was happening at the time. But when Bush came into office, right, the Soviet Union was disintegrating. The Berlin Wall fell in 1989, right? And Bush won the 1988 election. So it came into office in January 1989. He was dealing with this massive transition in global politics where the state of Russia, as we know it today, was emerging and lots of different Soviet republics like Georgia were leaving the country that they were a part of. The Soviets had nuclear weapons stationed in a bunch of other countries, like Ukraine, for instance, which wanted to keep the nuclear weapons when it became independent, which would have been an entirely different world. If you can imagine nukes being all around Europe where the Soviets had stationed them or Central Asia in certain cases. This was a massive, 
massive problem. Another facet of it was what to do about Germany. Do we allow Germany to reunify? Do we oppose German reunification? What are the terms that we set for East and West to come together again? What do we do about NATO, this alliance that was structured as an anti-Soviet organization, but— Now the Warsaw Pact essentially just disintegrated. Right. right. So, like, what do you do? And Bush made a decision—this one is also controversial—to expand NATO to include a lot of former Eastern Bloc and Soviet states. Right. uh, Which arguably contributed to the sense of threat that Russia experiences today. Each of these decisions, right, there was no obvious answer to them. There wasn't a clear way to handle this. There was no playbook for dealing with the breakup of your massive nuclear-armed strategic competitor. Yeah, and like the entire framework that the world had operated under for decades completely changing almost overnight. Bush criticized himself for not having what he called the vision thing, which meant like having some sort of grand strategy, some some grand vision Vision. for the world. Uh, But I will— push back on his own view of himself on this. When it came to Europe, he was always saying that Europe needed to be whole and free, and now people have added at peace. That was very clearly the strategy for Europe. For example, one of my favorites is that Helmut Kohl, the leader of Germany at the time, was considering, like, he was he was willing to do anything to reunify Germany. And one of the bones he was throwing out to his opponents was, maybe we'll just get out of NATO. Maybe that's sort of, like, a good way. And then the U.S. sprang into action, like, oh, hell no. Like, not only do you have to reunify, but you're going to stay in NATO. And there's a reason why Angela Merkel made the trip for this funeral, right? Bush is seen as one of the fathers of a unified Germany, of, of modern Germany. She's from East Germany? She's from East Germany. Yeah, exactly. Like, So, yeah, he may not have had the vision thing for the whole world, but damn it, he's a father of modern Europe. Yeah, for, you know, whatever your view of the current liberal international order, right, the the way the world runs in the post-Cold War era, you could very plausibly claim that George H.W. Bush is the man most responsible for the world that we live in today. And we're going to close there. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, for her tireless work on our podcast. And I want to encourage you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, wherever it is, we're there, and you should rate us. Thanks so much for listening. Listening.